Chapman goes to the screen. He's turned it round and he's wiped it off. The goal will not stand. It's still 1-1. What an incredible last few seconds of the game this is. For a foul, it appears by DK on Johnston. Welcome to the Club and Country Podcast. We are the podcast of record for Nashville SE coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. And to make that judgment, we didn't even have to go to the monitor. I am Nashville SE <laughs> radio broadcaster Wes Bowling. And I am Tim Sullivan, the proprietor and editor of ClubCountryUSA.com. Moon Taxi brought you the music on the way in. They'll bring it to you on the way out. Thanks to Tony Husband and ESPN 94.9 for the the highlight that everybody's going to be talking about. There were two goals scored between Nashville and Orlando, but that was not the point of discussion afterward. It was the goal disallowed by referee Alan Chapman. Thanks those to those a, are the only two scored. <laughs> right. There was another, and there could have been a fourth, actually. There was another controversy that's not getting much discussion. Nonetheless, we'll get into all of it today. And believe it or not, Unlike the folks in Orlando, we'll talk about more than just the officiating in the contest. But Tim Nashville does take a 1-1 result home from Orlando. It was not straightforward. In a lot of people's minds, especially to the south of us, it should have ended differently. Especially regarding the final few kicks of the game. I was confused in the immediate aftermath of the overturned goal call. Why exactly Andres Perez's goal didn't count? So uh, Orlando City's media team, I think, uh, inadvertently gave us a little bit of context as to what happened there. So it might have remained a mystery if not for them. So shout out to those guys. Yeah, and I thanked them on Twitter because I'll tell you what, it was a, it was an angle that even the referee didn't have. Apparently, mm-hmm. it was it was from Orlando's team. It was not from yeah. the TV broadcast. And uh, you know, honestly, based on the angles the referee had, I'm, su- I'm really surprised they made the call. Based on Orlando's angle, they were so kind to provide all of us. I'm with you. I, I disagreed with the call until I saw that. It was a foul. I think it absolutely was a foul. And I even had a little bit of back and forth on Twitter with the social media manager, who I believe was behind the decision to tweet that, who believes that uh, that I need more education when it comes to soccer. Because, of course, this has been the Orlando response. It's not that they disagree. It's that we're all idiots. Because how could anybody possibly see it differently from them? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that's maybe the lowest common denominator sort of discourse you'll end up getting on social media. But I, I know soccer very, very well. And I'm I'm very confident and was not confident before seeing that video. Very, very confident that the correct call was made. It was clear. And uh, those who are crying bias, I think, might want to take off their own glasses because in this case, I think the facts of the case were, were, were relatively clear. We'll get into it just a little bit more later. We'll hear Gary Smith's thoughts, but then we'll actually talk about the actual match. And let's proceed to, to do that now. Uh, but refresh your feed Thursday afternoon because as the playoffs approach and during the postseason, We're going to give you some bonus episodes, and we'll tell you about those on the show or on Twitter. Just keep an eye out because we want to make sure you guys have plenty to listen to. So today we'll look back at Orlando. We'll talk a bit about what's to come, but then we'll have a special preview of Decision Day for Nashville SC and for everyone else. Again, that's going to hit your feed by drive time. We're aiming for drive time Thursday afternoon. So get ready for extra content and a special guest you'll be very excited to hear from. Uh, So the Orlando result sets up a vital decision day, Tim. It it could still see Nashville finish anywhere from second, that's the goal, all the way to fifth. Yeah, I've been banging away at spreadsheets in a dimmed room. That's where I've been spending my last couple days here. But we're down to a pretty reasonable number of potential outcomes for Nashville SC. 
only 81 permutations possible. That means there are four games left that can uh, kind of determine where exactly Nashville SC finishes. And in nearly all of them, NSC finishes fourth or better, even with a decision day loss. So, um, you know, you're almost certainly looking at a home playoff game, regardless of result on Sunday. But of course, uh, you don't want to leave it up to fate either. Today's show more packed than the six yard area at the end of the Nashville Nashville (laughs) SC Orlando match. There, I did it again. I referenced that call. Dang it. Uh, In the early shout, we will recap the Orlando contest give you some gold nuggets from the game and then we'll get into those playoff scenarios and what will happen with a nashville win against red bull sunday a draw or a loss we'll embrace consensus after that what result does nashville need to earn on sunday to consider its season a success after all we will know the final point total at the end of things we'll also know the seed as every match we played at the same time at 2 30 we'll have that discussion and then uh, many mailbag questions um, again most of which were not about the controversy uh, down in central florida we will assess potential playoff opponents who does nashville sc most want to see in that first round game who does it most want to avoid and then how do we rate this team headed into the postseason also a couple of health updates for you as there are a couple of key contributors nashville sc is hoping to get back into action let's proceed now with our early shout Nashville could be in again this time. CJ Sapong laying it off and Mukhtar going through the middle. Hani Mukhtar into the penalty area and he slides it into the net. And that's the equaliser for Nashville early in the second half. Mukhtar scored here last year and he scores at Explorer Stadium again. That was ruthless from Hani Mukhtar. Nashville a level and it's a 15th of the season for the German DP. That goal from Honey Mukhtar, courtesy of ESPN 94.9. Tony Husband, Jamie Watson were on the call Sunday since it was a national telecast. The 53rd-minute tally equalized after Daryl DK opened the scoring in the 18th minute. The fifth goal for Daryl DK in five contests against this Nashville team. Tim, he has been absolutely dominant, but Nashville much brighter in the second half, able to really stamp their authority on the match for much of the second half and then hold on for the draw. Yeah, it's the first 15 minutes of the game. Gary Smith mentioned it in the post-game press conference. Uh, Nashville was kind of holding on for dear life, and obviously the TK goal was a big part of that, um, kind of caps that segment before Nashville really got its hold on the game and, and felt a lot more comfortable. I did think that there were times where Orlando's press gave Nashville troubles, even into the second half, but certainly after that initial barrage by Orlando, went a lot more, uh, I guess, evenly between the team. So we'll go into this controversial play one more time, and then we're going to leave it alone and and move on for the rest of the evening. The, the question I think that everybody wants to know, everybody's asking, and most people have an opinion on, was it a foul in stoppage time to negate the goal? Yeah, I, as we mentioned in the opening of this podcast, I was, I was really confused live, and when it went to VAR, I thought there must have been some sort of like offside call probably on the rebound. Maybe one of the players crashing in uh, was a little bit faster than one of the defenders crashing in um, for that second ball after the rebound. But um, when the goal was taken off the board, the broadcast, I think most people probably, I did not travel to Orlando, most people were probably in the same boat. The broadcast didn't really have a whole lot to say about it. It was unclear. They didn't really know what was going on either. And, and like we mentioned, Orlando City gave us the angle that we needed, and I think the controversy relates mostly to people focusing on what Daryl DK is doing with his hand, which is grabbing Alistair Johnson's jersey to the extent that it is not a foul, in my opinion. What's more important, though, is when you see what's happening at their feet, um, Alistair Johnson goes to clear the ball and he misses his clearance because DK just smokes him in the outside of his right foot. Um, there's no intent from DK. There's nothing malicious there. It just is, um, you know, he goes to make a play and and he hits Alistair rather than the ball and prevents Alistair from hitting the ball. Um, I, I think OCSC fans are kind of focusing on what, you know, what you would say is, is the more obvious part of it. But when mm-hmm. you look at where the action is actually happening, that's exactly what happened. And it, it's pretty clear to me 
and you know no uh gold colored glasses here i don't think at least but it, it seems pretty obvious that that was the call yeah in the moment i i was I, I, taken aback uh, in a positive way in this case that that it was called but then when we see the angle that, that again the referees didn't even have then i think it tells us more than maybe even they knew it is possible they made the wrong call based on the evidence they had in front of them, but ultimately made the right call in actuality. Unless again, they saw something in the front from one of those angles that, that we were unable to spot. So again, special thanks to the Orlando city social media <laughs> manager for putting that out there. My advice to other team managers would be maybe don't put incriminating footage out there. And again, I'm sure they were seeing this so strongly their way. They didn't realize that it was going to be such, but I'm with you. I think the key is, is Alistair Johnston's foot going to make contact with the ball. If Gerald DK's foot does not contact Alistair's ankle in that way Alistair is is in position there he's he looks mm-hmm. like to me he's about to kick the ball yeah. DK comes around hits his boot into the back of Alistair's ankle sends him I don't know how much of that sent him flying but it certainly directed him away from the ball to me it's yeah, a foul Alistair's definitely selling it uh, with the upper body <laughs> but, but the lower body is still there's still contact I think it's there Gary Smith agreed and discusses the call but also the build-up for Nashville SC in the second half that led to the equalizer and ended up leading to the point we certainly were far more effective going forward. There was a there was an edge and a, and a belief in some of our play um, right up until the final moments, and we can huff and puff and blow and you know say whatever we want. But the the, the final goal was a was a, a foul, and you know I've been told categorically that Hanny's challenge inside the box was a penalty. So I, I don't care what anyone wants to say. Um, you know they want to take a foul in goal and we'll take the penalty. So it's a draw, it's a point, and it's a very, very hard-earned point. It keeps them at arm's length from us. It, it takes us one step closer to the top four. So, Tim, this is a great point for Nashville SC for a few reasons. Number one, it looked like they were going to get it. It looked like they were going to come home with nothing until mm-hmm. uh, until the referee went to the monitor. It does put Orlando permanently behind the boys in goal. The Lions stay five points back of Nashville. So even a win for Orlando paired with a Nashville loss would not allow the Lions to pass the boys in gold. Uh, number two, it puts Nashville on the doorstep of a home playoff spot. You've mentioned the number of permutations out there and, and that the vast majority of those have Nashville playing at home. All they need to do is draw against New York Red Bulls, and that future is guaranteed. Number three, bigger picture, it's the 11th comeback for Nashville SC in the 14 matches in which they have conceded first. They've been a little softer defensively at times this year. They've given up some goals. but They've had the juice, even on the road at times, to come back and equalize as they did on Sunday. Yeah, and I think those first two points are obviously, in the big picture, what is most important in terms of how Nashville finishes the season. But it's that third point that I think is is so interesting because people kind of have this idea of, of Gary Ball as kind of a boring, mm-hmm. let's play for the draw sort of game. But if you concede first, you can't really play that way. So Nashville has played some exciting come from behind ways, even if it's resulted in, in a near MLS record number of draws so far. Nonetheless, it's it's been a bit more exciting than maybe kind of looking at the table and saying, oh man, look at that draw number. It's so high. The way they got there wasn't always, you know, it wasn't scoreless draws left and right. I will arrive at the 11 comebacks uh, math, by the way, uh, in a different way than most. Um, I think the Cincy comeback from two goals down only counts as half of a, of a comeback effort. <laughs> and the 2-0 comeback in Atlanta around Memorial Day weekend counts as two. 
I think I think that counts as two because Nashville's down in the bins in an intense place. I know it wasn't a great Atlanta team, but still. Well, that's a lot of disrespect. TQL Stadium catching a stray from West Bowling. <laughs> I mean, it, it hardly ranks high on the list of disrespect levied against Cincinnati this year. Yeah. Um, I did think opposing be, scorers had the most disrespect. And since he's center backs, maybe the second most disrespect to their own <laughs> to their own fans. I thought it'd be fun just for a second to visit the the top five draws this season for Nashville SC. There have been so many. That, by the way, Nashville's one away from tying the MLS record for draws in a season. There are four losses tied for fewest losses in a season, if they can maintain that. New England also on that mark. So we can rank draws because we have a lot to choose from. 17. <laughs> uh, the top five for me. Number five, D.C. away. That's a D.C. team that hadn't been shut out in 12 matches. Nashville gets a, a somewhat ugly scoreless draw but holds D.C. scoreless. And I think they broke D.C. in the process. Number four, NYCFC away. Uh, a steely, hard-earned draw against an NYC team desperately trying to catch them. Number three, I think, was this most recent Orlando away draw. Coming back, doing what they did, with the stakes being as high as they were for this team. Number two, that Atlanta United uh, away draw that we referenced a minute ago. They go down two. They scored twice after the 80-minute mark. Hani Mukhtar with both of those. And number one, New England away. I think holding the champions scoreless in any capacity, but especially on the road up there with uh, Aki Loba and Yonder Cadiz getting the start in that one. I think that is easily the best draw of the season. Yeah, I think before I even opine on the order of the draws, can we discuss how exactly Gary Smith specific, which are the best draws <laughs> of the season it can possibly be? There's only one team... <laughs> Whose journalists covering it can have this kind of podcast discussion? That's that's for that's no, for but sure. I, I, yeah, I think your top five is is about right. Um, maybe you could quibble a little bit with the order. I think, um, you know, some of the some of the comeback factors and the excitement of Atlanta might overcome even a better opposition in terms of New England. But yeah, I think I think you've got it just about right there. The one thing I would say is is the DC draw probably gets the, that little bit of bonus because of what has happened to DC in the time since. But other than that, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't complain with the order that you have them at all. That DC team, tell you what, they, uh, they hold Nashville scoreless, but Nashville holds them scoreless. Then they lose to New England, 3-2. They lose to NYC, 6-0. And all of a sudden, they're finding themselves outside the playoff line trying to push their way back up. Let's get into some gold nuggets, and we'll talk about a couple of notable points from the Orlando match. Number one, on that theme of comebacks, it's the third straight time that Nashville has earned a result, that that result has been a comeback. Also, Cincy away, and then that Columbus home game where they went down and came back when equalized. Um, it, it's a team, Tim, that has continued to show resilience this season, but especially down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to put too much stock into a comeback against Cincinnati, especially when you see the way that it turned out with Nashville. Ending Half a comeback. There you go. 63. Half a comeback. Yeah, but um, I mean, I mean, we've seen what Cincinnati is, but there's still something to be said for a team in Nashville that might have a reputation, unfairly, as we've talked about in the past, for not scoring because once an opponent goes up, they can bunker and prevent Nashville from, from making a comeback. They don't have to score anymore. Nashville's earned these draws, has earned these results by coming back against these teams. And that's something that probably more than people really realize speaks to the level of additional offensive firepower as compared, especially to last year. Nashville's attacking numbers in Orlando will not draw major attention throughout the league, but they were better than they've been for Nashville SC for much of the year on the road. Just the one goal, but the most shots on target all season in an away match against a team in playoff position. That's happened that's six a times. Baseball st- that's a baseball stat. But three qualifiers. a left-handed reliever on a Thursday. <laughs> with the wind blowing out. Sure. 
there are six of those though, six matches <laughs> against really good teams. And I think when you, when you put seven shots on frame against a team as high quality as Orlando and yeah, it's an Orlando team that had earned one clean sheet in its last nine. So, so not a, you know, a defensively sturdy team necessarily as I undermine my point. Uh, but it was the first, the most shots on target for Nashville in the first half of any match since that Miami away match eight matches ago when Nashville scored five. And, and I do wonder, Tim, if it points to maybe some signs of signs of life is unfair to say because they just scored six in Cincinnati, but but signs of progress from this attack on the road. Yeah, I mean, I've you know within the past couple of weeks, I've kind of been ste- beating that steady drum of like, hey, people are worried about this, and and certainly there's a reason to be worried when this team isn't scoring a ton on the road. But it really does seem like kind of a almost a statistical anomaly just mm. because it's, you know, away games against tough teams. It's going to happen. But um, I haven't I haven't changed with, with with a much more impressive offensive output. I still think the same thing. It's it's a very good offense and, and it's not an elite offense quite yet. It, maybe it'll get there. Maybe this is a sign that it's going to get there. Um, when you look at what they still didn't have on Sunday against Orlando, one of the top chance creators and left back. Dan Lovitz, um, especially um, no disrespect to Eric Miller, but when you play a player out of position, I left wing back to make up for the lack of Dan Lovitz to make up for the the lack of Taylor Washington, his backup, who was out with health and safety protocols. Um, you know, that makes it a little bit more difficult to be offensively creative. And then, of course, Dax McCarty, um, yet another game on the shelf, resting that hamstring for the stretch run of the season here. He's a guy who's going to create offense from the central midfield. You don't have those guys and you still put out that sort of attacking performance. Yes, you have the primary creators yes you have the primary finishers but it's something that it it takes all 11 basically to to do this and to do it without two of your best 11 is is something that shows that nashville when they get those guys back or even if they don't has a, a quite a bit of upside available here Nashville ran a bit of a different attacking setup this time than they have. Mm-hmm. They went with the three-man back line, but it was pretty much a pure 3-5-2 with Leal and Wheel in central midfield, yeah. and then you had the wings, of Good course, the lone in. holder, yeah. And just one holding, which, as I'm yeah. thinking about it, I'm trying to think of another time when there's only been one holding midfielder on the pitch. They did it a couple times last year, and Wheel and Anunga flanked uh, either Godoy or McCarty when the other one was out injured. That's the only time I can think of it, though. Do you feel that it gave this team a little bit more balance, that you didn't have Mukhtar and Sapong out, and maybe plus layout on an island because they had a, a player like wheel linking up with eric miller storming down the left flank and getting way up there at times i, I thought it, it provided a little bit more of a threat but also you still had the defensive stability you could lean back on yeah i think it really depends on on what you have available at the wing back positions when you have eric miller available at the wing back positions it probably makes a little bit more sense to go with a lone holder because miller's going to play a little bit more of a defensive game now obviously we did see him get into dangerous areas on a couple occasions but He's going to be a guy who plays the left wing back position a little bit more defensively. And so you, you kind of make up those numbers by having only one holder. So it, based on what Nashville had, yes, it provides balance. If Nashville had a full strength lineup, I think Gary Smith will go to his grave playing two defensive midfielders with it whenever he has the opportunity. At one point in the match, Nashville worked the ball over to Eric Miller in a good position. He took a shot. And it was saved. And it was a relatively straightforward shot and save by Pedro Galese. Why am I mentioning it? Because I dug into fbref.com, which I use a ton. I, I would I would pay a subscription if they charged. And I would I might pay it anyway just because they're awesome. <laughs> it was Eric Miller's first shot on target since 2016. Five right. seasons. Five seasons. That, was that in the Minnesota days or is that? Colorado. Oh, okay. Okay, going way back. back. So he's been a couple of places in Minnesota and New I York. I guess Minnesota uh, didn't even exist then, huh? Uh, yeah, they were They were not. They were uh, 
the loons were still on a lake somewhere in, in an ASL. A couple other notes, Gerald DK, as we mentioned, his fifth goal against Nashville in five matches, but we haven't really gone into much discussion of Hani Mukhtar's 15th goal to go with 12 assists, and so he jumps back into the lead of Major League Soccer in goals plus assists with 27 of them. Tim, is there any chance that he gets a decent number of first-place votes above Carlos Hill? I think that the, the near consensus around this league is that the New England mm-hmm. midfielder is going to win MVP, but I'm wondering if... if Honey's made a late run into consideration. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends on how you define decent number. I do think he's going to get some first place votes in that race, but I think it's heels to lose or or heels already sewn it up and he doesn't have it to lose even. It's, it's not going to be lost. But I do think that there are a couple of arguments that Hani's supporters could certainly make in saying, hey, let's take a quick look at the difference between Hani and Carlos Heel. And that's not this is not a, a rip on Carlos Hill. No, we can't, it's not least, possible but, to rip Carlos Hill. Right. But when you look at when you look at what New England has done, um, Adam Buxa has 18.43 expected goals on the year, and Carlos Hill only has 12.51 expected assists. So it's clear that there that there is a guy who's getting it done regardless of whether or not Hill is providing the service. Yes, 12.51 expected assists still rules. <laughs> Carlos Hill is still providing a ton of a ton of danger to opposing um, defenses, but. And you think it's important to note that when Heal hasn't been available, um, he's he's kind of shown that his value to the Revs is while high. It's not crucial to what they do. Um, his team went four one and one when he was out for six straight games. That's two point one seven points per game. Um, in the rest of the games, he's played in I, I believe every single other game this year. So that's pretty good. I, I people say you know his availability hasn't been there, but it was just a single six game stretch. They only got 2.22 points per game, though. So basically the same number. Um, Nashville did beat New England with Hani out. But when Hani hasn't played this year, they've gone 1-1-1, one, one, and one, uh, which is 1.3 points per game. And when Hani has been in, in the lineup in some capacity, it's been 1.63 points per game. So it's been quite a significant – that shows you the value, I guess. Um, so it's quite a significant value added for Hani as compared to what Heal provides to New England, which I think is is kind of a terror saw that's going to be cutting through people regardless of whether – even if ha- if Heal is the best player in the league, whether or not he's there, this is an awesome New England team. Maybe Hani is, is an important piece that can make or break Nashville at times. I think when it comes to value to his team, I think your your evidence is is strong. I think you know, the, the numbers of what New England's doing. There's there's a bit of a, a challenging narrative out there for me that that Bo and Buxa are you know Golden Boot or MVP candidates in their own right because of Carlos Heel. I think it's it's mm-hmm. tough. You're doing a job separating those guys are studs no matter what Heel is doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I will say that the the most compelling number to me is the key passes that where where Heel has created 113 chances this year. That's nearly 30 more than than second place competition. And Mukhtar's a little ways down that list with with just 54. I think Heel's your guy. I think everyone else is nipping at Carlos's heels. Yeah, you will. Uh, but I do think something is terribly wrong if Hani Mukhtar is not in consideration. It's not mm-hmm. a, a finalist, and I'll be extremely disappointed. But but not actually terribly surprised if if yeah. he does not receive the credit that, that we both think he deserves. Well, it's interesting because I would say the midseason consensus was that like uh, the national media were kind of waving him off, kind of saying, "Eh, this guy, this guy's not a real candidate." Now I would say the national consensus is that he's probably number two behind Heel. So that's something that Nashville, even if if Hani ends up, you know, maybe finishing lower than second in that competition, it's something that Nashville can build on in terms of in terms of PR and in terms of maybe an important piece to build around you know, from practical terms going forward into 2022 and beyond. 
Yeah, the absence of, of Raul Ruiz Diaz for a while, I think maybe hurt his his case a little bit. Daniel Shallow, he's been good, but but not transcendent. Ola Kamara, 17 goals, a great scoring season, but beyond that. Uh, the the know, vast majority of those are from are from uh, penalty kicks they as are. well, I believe. I, I believe it's like 9 out of 17 or something like that. A huge number. Which a is huge not number. a vast majority. That's that's imprecise language, I apologize. It is a, a a much higher percentage, though, certainly, than, than yeah. most other scorers. And, and for a team, I mean, I don't know that team performance necessarily always needs to play the, the role that it does, but for a team that's not in contention for any kind of mm-hmm. silverware, we would think this season. Um, speaking of silverware, let's go to the More playoff like, picture. Adios, Kamara. Am I right, folks? Oh, that's, we'll take a, that's it out pretty post. good. We'll take it out in post. <laughs> you went, no, that's good. You went with the, the Spanish-level pun. That's good. I think that's yeah. that's pretty He's good. He's Norwegian, not Spanish, everyone. I know this. Au revoir, Kamara. Almost sounds a little more like his name. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it switches languages and I think loses its effectiveness. You can rate the puns, but please don't make that your rating of the podcast. You rate, rate the puns in, the, in your comments and then give us five stars, please. Um, speaking of silverware, let's go to the playoff picture now. And let's let's simply break down Nashville's playoff scenarios. And again, if you want a more complex version of this, go to clubcountryusa.com where Tim's done the math and nearly broken his computer in the process. Uh, the now spreadsheet, the computer's, the computer's breathing easy now. I was going to say the spreadsheet's not really as, as complicated yeah, now. Yeah. It's much easier than your like 40,000 permutations a couple weeks ago. Especially <laughs> it was 177 something thousand. That's much e- Oh, Thank that's you. all. Yeah, piddly. <laughs> small potatoes now. It's especially easy though if Nashville wins or draws against Red Bulls. If, if they beat New York, they're going to finish top three. To get a better result than Philadelphia on the weekend, they'll finish second. Philadelphia needs a win. That's all they need. They have the tiebreaker over Nashville. They beat New York City on the road. Then Philadelphia is your two seed. If Philadelphia loses or draws and Nashville gets a win against Red Bulls, the boys in gold are your second place team in the Eastern Conference. They draw Red Bulls. They are third place unless Philly loses in New York. If they lose to Red Bulls, there's a wider range of possibilities, Tim. Yeah, I mean, so you just, the simple picture is, do better than Philly and you finish second, do worse than Philly and you finish third. As long as you get a result of some variety, if you lose, there's a lot more, <laughs> it gets a lot more complicated. There is one scenario out of 81 permutations that in which Nashville can finish fifth, which it would mean no home game in the playoffs. If Atlanta wins out, it has two games remaining. Unlike most of the teams in the East and New York city beats Philly on decision day. That creates a four way tie for second place. And Nashville is at the very bottom of the tiebreaker pecking order there. However, if any of those other three results, you know, Atlanta doesn't get both wins or Philly draws or tie or defeats NYC, then Nashville moves up incrementally per each of those results. So I think you're rooting for the Red Bulls to beat or draw Atlanta in the midweek to take that first round trip uh, off the table. You want to be at home. You want Red Bull to get a result against Atlanta in the midweek. Then you don't have to sweat it come decision day. And if you want to hear more talk on this subject, two things you can do. Number one, we mentioned go to clubcountryusa.com for a more in-depth update. Number two, listen to us in a couple of days, depending on when you're listening to this. Thursday afternoon, just in time for your evening commute, we're going to have a decision day special leading into the match. A bonus episode for you where we'll go a little deeper because then we'll have Wednesday's results to inform us. And so we can give you a little bit more insight into exactly what needs to happen in that match and what's happening elsewhere. And speaking of what's happening elsewhere, we'll go outside in now, again, bringing this segment up from its usual spot because we're talking about the Eastern Conference playoff race. The top three moments outside of Orlando starts between Red Bulls and Montreal. Lee takes it to the corner. Going back post, Caden Clark heads it down. Fabio, there it is! Bring the house down in stoppage time! The Red Bulls are in the playoff places for now! 
Got 91st minute winner from Fabio, courtesy of MSG. New York Red Bulls with that winner over Montreal. It knocks Montreal into 10th. This is an impact, a, a formerly impact, a, a club they put <laughs> no, Montreal team They're always to. impact to me. They're always the impact, and, and we need to stop even correcting ourselves on that one. This is a, a Montreal team that was showing extreme promise, and now they've really struggled. The second time in two weeks we featured them in this segment for giving up uh, a late goal. Last week it was an equalizer. This week uh, knocks them down a peg. And meanwhile, New York Red Bulls then bolsters its playoff hopes with that victory. And so now there's a reason that Nashville's Decision Day match has been picked up nationally and will be televised nationally because there are going to be big stakes for both teams. Yeah, that result gave the Red Bulls the inside track on a playoff spot with a finish as high as fourth on the table. But if they if they lose against Nashville and everything goes wrong against Red Bulls, they can still finish outside the playoffs. So they have a little bit more to play for, of course. If they get a result in the midweek game against Atlanta, they would they would seal a playoff bid. So it's a matter of opinion whether, um, from a Nashville perspective, you want Red Bulls to have everything to play for come Sunday, or maybe a little bit less to play for, but maybe a little bit less of that national intrigue as well. Delivery is a good one again. Ball across the six. The goal has been coming. And it's scored. The substitute. Jordan Peruzza pounces late. Toronto steals a point at the Benz. Atlanta United could have been in fifth, just four points behind Nashville with a game in hand as they do have that Red Bulls match in the midweek. Now Atlanta isn't officially above the playoff line for good at recording time. They need a couple of wins and they need some help from NYC if they even want to host a playoff match. Yeah, Toronto have seeded Nashville a huge solid, and, and the television audience as well. It was a very exciting game. Atlanta felt dominant for much of the game. They were so wasteful in transition pretty much for 90 minutes and it ended up biting them. And and for that reason, Atlanta no longer is going to feel like they can probably catch Nashville. Nashville needs to help them or, or NYC needs to help them. So at this stage, you have to think that, um, you know, Atlanta is going to be one of those teams that Nashville could potentially host in that first round of the playoffs. That highlight courtesy of Kevin Egan of Bally Sports. And now let's head to the city of brotherly love. Baizo trying to rescue the possession here. Wagner. Pedroia, flag stays down for the moment. Pedroia with options, going to play it back. Baizo with the rocket, he scores! The first career goal for Olivier Baizo! 1-0 Union! Philadelphia 2-0 win over FC Cincinnati. After what Nashville did to Cincy in the midweek, you would have maybe expected to see the Union do more. However, Nashville actually needed help from Cincinnati, and they didn't get it. No surprise, that's now... 11 straight losses for Cincy. If Philly had failed to beat Cincy, Nashville would have clinched a home playoff mm-hmm. match with that result in Orlando. But that 2-0 win pushes things to the final day and puts Philly in position where, again, all they need to do is equal Nashville's result and they will be ahead of them in the final table. Yeah, only beating Cincy 2-0 is a nail-biter given the uh, resume that the that the Lions have put forward. But, um, yeah, as you mentioned, um, Cincy could have helped Nashville and, and that's not the reason they were they lost the reason they lost is because they're a bad soccer team but certainly it doesn't break their heart to prevent nashville from from sealing something uh, on the penultimate day of the season for them you may be a relatively new listener coming in as the playoff push intensifies if so we tell you that we typically like to try to embrace debate it usually turns into more of a consensus situation we, we typically like to embrace debate something that we've done i think in exactly one episode so far it's always consensus <laughs> well it's a matter of intention versus reality <laughs> cincinnati typically likes to post clean sheets as well they don't usually pull it off 
they Fair just enough. want to. Uh, so Queen we will embrace consensus now. <laughs> and uh, and we'll ask the question of, of what constitutes a successful finish for Nashville SC. You know, obviously the story of the regular season is mostly written for this team. And yet there's still a decently wide variation in what can happen in the table based on how Nashville performs a loss against Red Bulls that we both agree would, would be um, quite unsuccessful and a bummer and could push Nashville as far back as fifth, although that's unlikely Um, a win versus a draw. Which of those results do they need to get against Red Bulls, Tim, for you to consider this regular season, the level of success that the boys in gold are hoping to reach? Yeah, I think one more point does it because it, it does officially seal that home playoff match. Uh, whether it means second or third, a draw is kind of irrelevant in my eyes. I think 54 points is a good benchmark. It would have finished second in 2016. That's the only year of the TAM era that it would have finished second. But a lot of these seasons since have been like record setting point totals for both first and second place. So that's understandable. So I think it's a benchmark you can build upon. It's obviously something that you look at as, okay, this takes us into the playoffs, but certainly in future years too, you look at it and say, now we've set a benchmark and we're going to try and exceed that in future seasons as well. Remind me again, what's the name of the segment? Embrace uh, consensus is my guess for today. Oh, right. Yeah. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Uh, a draw with Red Bulls and a third place finish, I think, is is just fine. If you get a little bit lucky and Philadelphia loses at NYC and you get that draw and you're into second place, you're really happy. But I think for some, I can understand redefining what success is. You know, Gary Smith told me last week, he said, all the benchmarks that we set for this team, for how they were going to perform in their second season of Major League Soccer in the regular season – We've passed those. We've yeah. met them. We've passed them. This season, you lose to Red Bulls. You finish you know, fourth, even fifth. This year's a success because mm-hmm. of how this team has improved. However, for many of us, and I think for the folks in that locker room, that definition has long since changed. And there are cup aspirations here. And so I will say a draw with Red Bulls is, is fine. I think Nashville, if they can get the win and finish second with a little help again from New York City against Philly, I will say, unscientifically, they have a 25% greater chance of making the conference final. I'm sure your spreadsheets and your prognostication and your math could either (laughs) refute that or totally reinforce it with with, with an actual number. But that is the difference between hosting a Philadelphia team or somebody else in the conference semis and traveling to a place, again, Philly, where Nashville just lost. One of four losses this season unbeaten at home if you can host that match i think you feel much better about your chances of of getting to new england where i think you're playing with complete house money Uh, and the other thing i'll say the highest seeded team hosts mls cup so obviously if you're second you have a better chance of hosting mls cup than if if you finish third yeah that's absolutely true i think it would take quite a few upsets on decision day in the West or upsets in the course of the playoffs for that to actually become relevant because uh, Nashville is behind Colorado. Can't catch them. Seattle can't catch them and Kansas city can't catch them. So it's a tough, it's a tough ask to say, to say all three of those teams lose in the playoffs, but certainly the better you are, the better you feel about the chance of, of making that happen. Um, you become a big Portland Timbers fan all of a sudden, or maybe a, a Minnesota United fan um, for the Jamie Watson connection only or eric miller as per our previous conversation so yeah i it may it's still unlikely that that would happen but um, i think the one thing that's really interesting about what you said is, is gary smith has been very open i have a specific point t- total in mind for this season i am not going to tell you what it is and even now that he's passed it we'll not tell people publicly what nope. it is which i think is very funny but um very on brand for him too 
Let's get in the mailbag and continue on this topic of playoff matchups. Jay Robinson asks which team would be the best or worst matchup in round one for Nashville. So, you know, based on our answers, you guys can watch these final games and keep an eye on decision day and have some some good, some better, and some terrible uh, opponents in mind. Tim, who do you think Nashville most wants to avoid at this point? Yeah, I think Atlanta United scares me the most for three reasons. First of all, they're 10-3-2 since the midway point of the season. Obviously, they still have two more games to play, not just one, but still, they're going to finish on a really hot tear regardless. Um, it's pretty much as hot as anyone other than and probably New England. I have not looked. Um, don't fact check me, everyone. Um, and secondly, one of those losses came against Nashville, so there's a little bit of a revenge factor at play for Atlanta, especially because it became became – uh, a situation where Nashville suddenly took over Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Basically, you can bet your bottom dollar that they want to do the exact same in Nissan Stadium if they have the opportunity uh, in a few weeks here. And then third, it's just the talent. Joseph Martinez and his supporting cast kind of have that any given Sunday vibe where it's regardless of what we've done in past weeks, this week we have the talent to go to any venue in this league, any venue on this continent, which I think Atlanta is one of very few teams that can say anywhere on the continent, mm-hmm. including, you know, mm-hmm. a Champions League game in Mexico and win. And if you're hosting them and they have that sort of swagger about them, regardless of their results, it's something that really scares you. That's the thing. They've done it. They've been mm-hmm. there. Nashville SC, by definition, as an expansion team, obviously has not been past that final eight and and cannot have that championship pedigree yet until they develop it. So I think that's a formidable opponent. I would agree with you um, that, that that would be scary for Nashville SC potentially. If the season ended at time of recording, Nashville would play Atlanta. That's likely to change, and the boys in gold wouldn't mind seeing Atlanta jump up into that fifth spot as they play Cincinnati on decision day. And then they have that huge match against Red Bulls that we keep referencing. So there's a decent chance Atlanta's up out of that spot, but but man, that would be a compelling, very compelling <laughs> What if matchup. Cincinnati beat Atlanta? <laughs> That would, for so many reasons, be incredibly satisfying. I'm so shocked that they didn't flex that one into national. Atlanta, Cincinnati. <laughs> uh, you know, if you want goals, you're going to get them at least from one side. Oh, man. Um, I'll, I'll say a different team. I think Atlanta's a great answer. Um, I'll say Orlando. Speaking here's of aggrieved teams. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, right? So so they're salty and they're physical. They've scored on Nashville every time these teams have ever played. Nashville's never shut them out. And they have that proven attack. It would likely require multiple goals from Nashville. I think Nashville prefer to see a team. They know that they can um, shut down, as they did D.C. on the road, for instance. Uh, Not to tease my answer for who they might prefer to play in a minute. But I think Orlando is another team that is, they're seasoned, they're, they're salty, they have all the motivation in the world. And, and I think that would be an extreme challenge for the boys in gold. Um, it's an Orlando team that, that did win in that first round last year. Uh, I think the preferred opponent as we switch to who Nashville might want to see is DC United. They're winless in their last six away from home. They have an aggressive approach similar to an Orlando, but without the defensive backbone that Orlando has or that Atlanta has developed. And, and that makes them uniquely vulnerable to Nashville's counterattacking danger. I mean, it was a 5-2 game the last time those two mm-hmm. teams, teams met at Nissan Stadium. Yeah, I, I want to bring it back to one point, and I can't believe we didn't bring this up when we are actually talking about the Orlando game, because Nashville has not shut them out in, in six games. However, in only two of those games, did Daryl DK do a mummy celebration. And for different reasons. Last year, it was because he had a head wrap on because he had a head injury. This year, it was because it was on Halloween. So, shout out to Daryl DK. 
it was a foul on the last uh, play there, but um, he, he seems like he rules, actually. <laughs> well, and, you know, it looked for a minute like Orlando was dead, and they rose from the dead. Maybe there was <laughs> symbolism there, too. So, Does he have other celebrations, or is the mummy, like, just his go-to, and then he claims he has a reason for it afterward? I, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, Mother's, Nash- Mother's Day? Nashville has taken one on the chin twice, and that's all that really counts. Mother's Day, he's going to do the mummy celebration. You know, just, <laughs> yeah, just... Mummy, mummy, mummy. Exactly. Yeah, there we exactly. Go. yeah, you know, multiple applications, I suppose. Big Orange Hypo reaches out and asks what the team looks like heading into the New York match. And he says, you know, health, injuries, you know, a few different things. I'll, I'll say, first of all, let's, let's talk about health. There are a couple guys who are out. Mm-hmm. We can update you on. Daniel Rios' ankle... It continues to bother him. Does not look like it's probably a death blow to his season, but um, they're going to be cautious with him when they have other options coming off the bench. Aki Loba's been a little more positive lately, so no reason to risk him before the playoffs, in my opinion. We'll see if he plays against the Red Bulls. He might. Um, Dax McCarty with his hamstring injury. I think they're optimistic. He'll return relatively soon. Gary even said mm-hmm. after the match that yeah. you know if he'd had to push it against Orlando, he yep. could have. They're just really going to try to rest him. And a bummer for this dude that he didn't get to play in his hometown. Yeah, it is. He's played everywhere all the time. So, you know, it's not exactly the biggest. (laughs) He's got all these hometowns. Let's strengthen the question, though. The question, how does the team look? Well, let's let's go a little little deeper with that on the scale of one to 10, Tim. How good is this team right now relative to its ceiling? And for the ceiling, I'll define that as the five match unbeaten stretch between D.C. that 5-2 win, Montreal away 1-0. It resulted in four wins in five. And was was Nashville at the height of its attack, at the height of its balance, in my opinion. Compared to that 10 mark, I'm going to go 7. I think this team still looks pretty good. I think it waned down to maybe a 6 there for a bit. But now that the attack has found its footing a bit and looked solid, underlying metrics look solid against Orlando, even though just the one goal. You score 6 against Cincy, that's going to give you some points even against Cincy. Um, nine road matches in 11 have to factor in there. And yet Nashville is able to, to, to only lose two of those. Uh, the defense is not at its height of dependability. They're still conceding a little softly. Uh, there's a question mark at second striker now, even with Lopa coming on a bit and with Rios out, there's not still a go-to pairing in central midfield. You don't have two guys, you know, you're going to roll out every time, but do you need that with Anuka coming in and being as effective as he has to give one of those two veterans a rest? So I'll say a seven out of 10, but with plenty of room, uh, it would not surprise me if they give a nine or a 10 out of 10 performance against Red Bulls. Yeah. I think it's closer to that nine or 10 out of 10 based on two things. First of which is, is Dan Lovitz will be available after Nashville's had him very sparingly in recent weeks, first an injury. And then he was suspended uh, for Sunday's match against Orlando. And then assuming as, as I think you pretty laid out pretty uh, clearly that it's safe to assume that Dax McCarty comes back close to full strength. If you have both of those guys, you have basically everyone that you could want. I love Daniel Rios as a player, as much as anyone out there, but with Ake Loba kind of finally finding some form, obviously very low sample sizes in terms of the goal and the assist against Cincinnati, but nonetheless, he's a guy who's finally finding that form and he probably has higher potential than a guy like Rios. Again, despite his, despite the love that I have for Rios's game, I think Loba's ceiling is probably a little bit higher. If you can consider him a like for like replacement and, and an improvement, bringing back McCarty, bringing back Lovitz, that's basically your best 11 available. And then probably your best six or seven deep on the bench too. Yeah, it rounds into form at just the right time for this team. And yeah, you're going to have a, a break before the playoffs anyway to get some of those guys back. So to me, the only thing you really need to be nervous about on the decision day is health. These guys emerging from that match healthy. Jess Lancaster, though, well, Jess is stressed. How can I not be 
so stressed about the last game of the que- of the season is the question. The first thing I thought about when I woke up this morning was getting a home playoff game. I'll say this, if you want to avoid stress, you might have chosen the wrong team and the wrong league. How nervous should Nashville SC fans be about decision day? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. Like, I think the nerves are like part of why we get into this, right? You, you are interested in sports because you want to feel and it, <laughs> and it makes you feel that's part of the deal. But um, obviously, you know, pending the important midweek game, um, Nashville has its playoff berth locked up. It has its control of its own destiny for a home match. And, and even if it doesn't take care of business, probably still gets a home match. So you don't need to really be sweating it that much, but there is something to sweat because you do have the opportunity to move all the way up to the number two seed. So the thrill is part of the fun, but uh, maybe having a bit of a parachute before the fall is, is going to be a little bit less stress inducing this weekend. Logan asks, um, whether it's fair to say that Eric Miller at left wing back might have cost Nashville three points. He concedes that it was a decision forced by injury, and it was. Um, Dan Lovett's out, as we mentioned. Taylor Washington missed the match due to a, a late entry into the health and safety protocol. Uh, he said, you know, saw Eric got into a couple of really good positions in the final third, just couldn't find his bearings. Logan says, I don't blame him, just thought Mwil could have filled in there. Mwil, of course, was starting. I was starting um, a little more centrally, a little more you know, higher up the pitch. I mean, Eric did notch his first shot on target in five seasons. So, I mean, just say it. Uh, but that's, you know, in, in all seriousness, Tim, that's not the job Nashville's asking Eric Miller to do. Right. And I don't know that, that there were a couple of chances that maybe could have gone a little better. He could have put on mm-hmm. frame. But I don't think there was just a vast difference, especially when you consider that Miller did his job defensively for the most part against a, a very incisive Orlando attack. Yeah, I asked Gary after the game how he thought Eric performed in in a position that he's not been asked to play before for this team, at least. Um, he said he did pretty well, very defensively sound. Um, I think it's going to stick in people's minds that he had a couple offensive chances that he could have done better with. Um, Gary mentioned, you know, the, the question was very broad and Gary mentioned, I have to go back and check the film on whether he was partially responsible for letting Mueller um, get down the, that channel to provide the assist to Daryl DK on Orlando's goal. I also have not gone back and checked the film. Um, I'm sure Gary has by now, <laughs> but, but at the time he had not yet had the opportunity to do that. So, you know, not a perfect game, but I don't think it was the difference between a draw and a win either. I think uh, a different left wing back probably was not going to provide um, you know, the opportunity to get into the box and, and foolishly try to draw a foul with limited contact rather than getting a shot off, maybe. But but certainly he's a guy who um, you don't play him to get into those positions. You play him to be defensively sound. And I think he was pretty much defensively sound. And of course, you know, if you have Ronaldinho <laughs> standing at the top <laughs> of the box, you're going to score more goals. But that's not the expectations when you put Eric Miller onto the field. So I don't think there's a whole lot that you can ask of him more than that. I think a lot of managers around the league would be grateful to have an Eric Miller to yeah. rely on as a third string left back. Right. Uh, well, and it's, and it's, it's fair to say that, that maybe a better player makes a better play there. And I think mm-hmm. for the most part, people agree that Dan Lovitz and, and even Taylor Washington are both better players, at least as left-sided defensive players. But at the same time, you know, blaming one individual in a 90 minute game for a couple moments. And, and um, you know, as long as I go back and see that, that the, the uh, goal that Nashville conceded was more on the center backs, which is what Gary kind of suspected when, mm-hmm. when I asked him in post game, then I don't think there's a whole lot more you can ask of Eric Miller. 
Final question from Justin. Are Orlando fans more insufferable than Cincy fans? <laughs> and, and we don't we don't tend to get into a lot of the Twitter banter here. I think that there's a place for that, but maybe it's not necessarily is this podcast. Is, is Twitter the place is for Twitter? Twitter is well, there's a there's a place to discuss that, I will say, besides Twitter perhaps. Um I, I will say this, you know, as you look at some of the most notorious fan bases in the league. Yeah, I don't really mind Cincy, and again, I'm not in on all the Twitter beef and all the yeah. meme, memes. Meme? Is it French? It's I don't meme. know. It's meme. No, it's, it's meme. meme. I thought okay. it was meme before I ever heard it spoken aloud. But. <laughs> I mean, it, it should be if you wanted to sound yeah. classier, but but we're not in on a lot of that. I think Cincy fans are a bit of a declawed tiger, though. You know, maybe they would be yeah. really annoying if they actually had the claws of success to support their their attack. It's the defense that needs more support, I think. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of some supporters in this league i've gotten to know some montreal supporters uh this year and i've really enjoyed interacting with them love portland and the way they show up for their squad and all the cascadia uh i, I don't have much of an issue with atlanta either i think the relationship with orlando with, with nashville and atlanta is good mm-hmm. i'll say this about orlando there's a level of of saltiness there i did not think and i'll look at my map again that orlando was anywhere near either of the two oceans that that touch up against florida shores but there's a lot of salt I don't know what they're serving in, in that stadium. Maybe it's salt water, but the, the it, Gulf of Mexico is not a separate ocean from the Atlantic Ocean. Are we really going to go that? To speci- we have I, to specify. I was that. second place in my seventh grade geography <laughs> B. I, two two different large bodies of salt water, sure, but it's an arm of the Atlantic Ocean. It's now you, the now same you're ocean. insufferable. Now you're being insufferable. <laughs> So fair. So fair. <laughs> you pride yourself in that. That's that's actually a compliment. Any fan base is going to be mad about a bad call. But even before the perceived bad call, again, that we both tended to agree with, you know, chanting F Atlanta when Atlanta's not playing, like that kind of stuff. Some of that, you know, Twitter's not always representative, and so it can be hard to, to really judge because every fan base is going to have its obnoxious Twitter people. Some of you would, would pridefully claim to be uh, Nashville's obnoxious Twitter people. So... <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm not going to rank fan bases, but I will just, I, I included that question just for, to make the point that, that I was, um, a, a little bit taken aback by the amount of, of anger, vitriol and salt I saw after the match from Orlando supporters and during the match. And it's something I've seen before from this group. It's not a particularly admirable group of people, at least maybe they're all great folks, but we all got families. We all got whatever, but like, I've, I've not, I've not been impressed with what I've seen. So I will say this about Cincinnati. The thing that is frustrating about their fan base is because the team is so bad, there's an immediate pivot to, oh, well, we fill our stadium, Mm -hmm. which is like, it is a point in FC Cincinnati fans' favor or that they are able to fill their stadium for a bad team. Although they have not filled their stadium nearly to the degree that they've announced this year, I can confidently state after having been there last Wednesday. Jeez, yeah. But secondly, but secondly, like, this isn't, this is, you don't get points in the table for filling your stadium. The competition is soccer, not fan something or other. So it's, it's this pivot away from what matters to to the thing, the only thing that they have any sort of bragging rights in that frustrates <laughs> me about Cincy fans. Um, beyond that, I I don't get into the the fan wars, which I say with a Z, very specific fan wars mm-hmm. um, very much. Um, New England fans hate any and all variety of, of power rankings that are based on, on <laughs> mathematical formulas because... Um, the revs are not as good as they look this year, aside from the fact that they have Adam Buxa and Matt Turner uh, on either end of the pitch, their creation and stuff does not kind of live up to that. And they, they outperform the numbers. And I've said every time uh, on deaf ears uh, that this is a team that's going to consistently outperform the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've taken a bit of guff from new England fans this year, but 
largely, I think, I think every fan base has its positives and its negatives and yes, that it uh, applies to Nashville's as well. So I'm, I'm not out here to, to speak with comprehensive knowledge of all the teams. Yeah. The, the idea that because you disagree on an interpretation of a call, you are clearly stupid and need more soccer education is the one that continues it, to just... There are so many more reasons to call you stupid and need it's a soccer so education, Wes. It's so true. <laughs> Absolutely. So find the real legitimate ones. Um, and then the fact that that extended to Orlando City's social media manager, again, just makes me kind of smile and shake my head. <laughs> All right. Final whistle time now. It, it's It's been a while since we gave you an update on MLS Fantasy. Oh. Tim, I, I, I've not been doing it very often because I don't want to remind you that you have a team so I can yeah. stay ahead of you in the Yeah, standings. you should have. I might be doing a little bit better. You're in 14th. Okay, hey, that's not bad. You're like Crystal Palace or so right yeah, now. Yeah, you were, you were like, you know, West Ham earlier in the year. Usual West Ham, not this year's West Ham. <laughs> uh, I'm in fifth, one point out of fourth, uh, the third best wing in the league. Not that, you know. Not that I'm bragging. Uh, Brayton also did not remember that MLS fantasy is a thing, by the way. 440 Sports proprietor Brayton Gall, 20th place. Somehow not last, despite the fact that I'm pretty sure he's not checked his team since. When did the season start again? Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely have not checked mine since the last time you did an update to this. <laughs> All right. Well, I cannot, I cannot uh, cast any stones in this particular glass house. Well, uh, let's get on to content recommendations then. Uh, my recommendation is that Tim go and check his MLS fantasy team. Uh, but also, if you if you check out The Athletic, um, there's a cool video that, that discusses the ins and outs of MLS franchise valuation. And, uh, and you know, we all, or a lot of us probably know that MLS franchises are, are quite valuable, quote-unquote, in terms of, of what people are paying. The expansion entry fee is very high. Acquisition costs are, are very high. And it gets into why that is, but it also compares it to club values around the world and, and purchase prices there. Uh, Newcastle, of course, recently bought. Um, West Ham has had some valuation tied to it uh, recently because of some takeover discussion. So I think it's interesting to understand, number one, how MLS clubs compare uh, to the English Premier League clubs, which you would think would be the most valuable in the world just based on their uh, recognition and cachet. Uh, but also it talks about the fact that when you buy an MLS team, you're really buying a stake of Soccer United marketing as well, and that for many owners, that's the true appeal, more so than even owning the club, as uh, many MLS clubs lose money year over year. So, uh, Tim, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, again, TIFO Video is the the name. It's uh, on The Athletic if you visit and just look up their MLS page. Yeah, mine is mine is very simple. It's something that I've recommended before. It's it's our friends at Pharmaceutical Soccer, mm-hmm. the second best the second best podcast about soccer in Nashville. But oh, they have a great interview with Tony Husband this week. Um, obviously we had Tony on a few weeks ago and he was awesome and, uh, equally or greater awesomeness on, on their podcast as well. So check those guys out. Um, and shout out to, to Clay train. I'm one of the pharmacists on that podcast. Uh, he was my ride to and from Cincinnati. We went to the creation museum in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. It was everything I had hoped it would be and more <laughs> very interesting stuff there. Um, check out the creation museum wherever in Kentucky it is as well. Well, they've really built that quickly. It's been a fast evolution. Hey, uh, don't even get me started. Don't even get me started on it, man. (laughs) (laughs) We won't monkey around with that topic. Um, (laughs) All right. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, you guys, for for tuning in. Don't forget, we're going to have another episode for you Thursday afternoon to get you ready for New York Red Bulls. It'll be a more informed episode because we'll know what happened on Wednesday. We'll be able to very clearly break down the stakes for Sunday. And we're also going to have a very special guest. You're going to want to listen on Thursday. Trust us. Going to be fun, Tim. Good thoughts. Rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend about us, follow us on Twitter at Club Country USA at West Bowling TN. 
We appreciate Moon Taxi's music. We appreciate ESPN 94.9's highlights. Thanks to 440 Sports Network for keeping us on the air. We will talk to you with our bonus episode on Thursday.